Well, shall we begin tonight? Welcome to our Wednesday evening Bible study. Getting back into this Doctrines of Grace study. Now, just out of curiosity, uh, almost, I give you a little handout each week of, of homework, optional homework, but for those doing it a little bit too much, you're able to, to hang in there. I mean, it's a lot of verses. The, the intentions just get you in, get you doing some Bible study, but going okay? Generally okay? Okay. Well, tonight we're, we're moving on. We're started this lesson, uh, this whole study a few weeks ago, doing some a little bit of history lessons on the doctrines of grace and the, the long age-old debate between God's will and sovereignty and salvation versus man's. After that, we moved on to a pair of really fundamental lessons covering sin, the fall and original sin. Stuff you can't skip over, though. You might be tempted to, like I already know about the fall and original sin, but we want to really be careful to lay the foundation and be precise about what the Bible says about our sin problem. And today we're, we're still in that, but we're, we're really getting into, you could say, the bulk of this study. You remember how the debate, it's centered around these five points, and the five points of Calvinism versus the five points of Arminianism, and a, uh, an acronym you often use to condense the five points of Calvinism or represent them as TULIP. And today we, we're finally getting into the first of those, the T, which is total depravity and contrasted with free will. We'll see that this week and, and next week as well. We'll spend a few weeks in, in the tea and tulip, basically. And we've now built up enough to, to get there. And so far, we've really been studying how sin has affected the human condition. That's where we've begun. And starting with the fall, we've learned that sin did not exist at creation. Rather, Adam rebelled. He fell into sin. He entered a state of sin and rebellion. As a result, God cursed Adam he cursed humanity. He cursed the world itself. Uh, in the curse, the nature of the planet changed. And so did the nature of humanity. Our own internal human natures changed as a result of that, that fall and that curse. And so that's why we can now describe all human beings as fallen. How exactly did Adam's sin and rebellion adversely affect his descendants? That was our goal from last week's lesson on original sin. And there we learn that Adam's sin brought all of humanity into a state of rebellion and condemnation and plunged them into a sin nature. This analogy we used of, of declaring war last week I think is helpful. Just to, to rephrase it, imagine if there was a renegade U.S. citizen decided to go to North Korea and, and assassinate their leader just by himself, just on his own. He thought he would do the world a favor he assassinated their leader. He was caught. It was a U.S. citizen. So they, what, immediately declare war on America. They think he's maybe a spy. Or it doesn't matter. They declare war. Just here you have an American citizen assassinating their leader. And that one person has now plunged every American citizen into a state of war with, for example, in this case, North Korea. It doesn't matter if you're born later or you had nothing to do with that one act. You, that one person was able to affect all of us. Even more so if it was a head of state, like if, if our president declared war unilaterally, or like we said last week, launched a nuke, he would, being our head, our representative, plunge all of us into a state of war and rebellion and enmity with that other country. And that's, that's basically an analogy of what Adam did, being our federal head, acting on behalf of humanity as our head. And that's why we're born in a state of war with God, essentially. Enmity with God. Adam's sin against a perfectly holy and righteous God was a declaration of war that plunged all humanity into a state of enmity with God. 
And so scripture teaches we inherit this guilt, this condemnation, this defilement from Adam, from that original sin. Not only do we inherit this guilt and condemnation, but we also inherit a sin nature. So remember we studied both these last week, a sin nature. Again, the nature of Adam and Eve changed after the fall. Born in them was now this inclination towards sin and evil. Now they were pointed towards sin. Their, their nature, their will was attracted to sin, like a magnetic, uh, magnetic attraction now. They're being drawn to it as opposed to repulsed by it. Before the fall, furthermore, we could say their wills were genuinely free. They had what we would say is real free will, the ability to do otherwise, the ability to do what they wanted to do, both definitions. But after the fall, their wills became bound, enslaved by sin, enslaved by Satan, who deceived them. And that that same sinful, fallen, bound nature passed on to all their descendants, all born after them, which is all of us. Every person is now polluted by sin and born a sinner. As we said before, people are not sinners because they sin. They sin because they're sinners. The sin nature comes first. That's the real problem, an internal heart problem. Now to get more precise, each person's condition after the fall, after all the stuff we studied the past two weeks basically, our condition after all that is rightly understood, can appropriately be described by the term total depravity. Total depravity, and that's the subject of this lesson tonight. Total depravity, it's another one of those terms that's widely misunderstood, kind of like original sin. And so for this reason, it's helpful to start by stating what it does not mean, what total depravity does not mean. It doesn't mean that people are as bad as they possibly could be. Most people, in fact, are, they're not murderers. They're not rapists. They could be worse, be worse off in their sin. Some people are pretty out there, but not all people are equally bad or as bad as they could be. That's not what this is trying to teach. It's not saying all are totally depraved in the sense they're as bad as possible. Total depravity also does not mean people are incapable of virtue. People can still do good on a human level. We'll talk about that later, but on a human level, a societal level. Look, even the worst of sinners can still help an old lady cross the street or donate to charity. Now, we'll learn later that such good deeds are not good in God's eyes. It's like a serial killer donating to charity. It's like they, they, they don't want your donation. It's defiled. We won't take it. Our good deeds are not good before God, but on a human level, men can do things that could be described as virtuous and, and good. So, to the contrary, what is total depravity all about? It means that people cannot do good in any way that pleases God. This is a corruption before God that we're talking about. Before God, all are depraved and defiled, and nothing that comes from them can earn God's merit and favor, and that's all we really care about. We don't really care about being good in man's eyes, but in God's eyes. And in that sense, you can't. You're not. You're totally depraved. That's what it means. Their natures are corrupt and therefore incapable of any spiritual good. All are spiritually dead in sin and under the curse of sin, and they live lives governed by evil principles, and therefore they're entirely unable to truly love God, know God, even choose God. And this explains why the word depraved is used in this definition. Depraved means morally corrupt or wicked. 
And that describes now, after the fall, all humanity, all are depraved, all are morally corrupt and wicked. From the inside out, you're born in that state, a state of depravity. Their natures are fixed against the will of God. It's like all people now, they're born aimed away from God. It doesn't matter how hard you run or strive or try and do good. It's all in the other direction. You're all, all your efforts are pointed away from God. It doesn't matter how fast or far you go. It's, it's in the wrong direction. So it's, it's all null and void. And keep in mind, it's, this is a binary state, meaning you're either with God or against him. You're running toward him or away from him. You're either in sin or, or not. Jesus himself taught that the bad tree cannot bear good fruit. So if you're a bad tree, no good fruit will ever come from you. We'll see that in the weeks to come. But just think of it this way. Imagine you go to your favorite restaurant, maybe it's a sandwich shop, and uh, you just ordered your sandwich. It's being prepared. You're in the bathroom. You have to go to the bathroom, so you go to the bathroom. You do your thing. Meanwhile, you see that the cook who was preparing your sandwich comes in the bathroom, and he's, he's going to do a quick clean. No gloves, bare hands, just as a quick clean of the toilets. You're just kind of watching him, and, and then he just he leaves. Doesn't wash his hands, just, just cleans and, and leaves. And then he goes, and he's finishing to prepare your sandwich. And you know, like, that's the guy that just started my sandwich, and he's now finishing my sandwich. Are you going to eat the sandwich? <laughs> you're going to leave. You're not going to eat the sandwich. It doesn't matter if he was the greatest chef in the world and he was going to make the best sandwich in the world with the best ingredients in the world. Now, to you, the whole thing's defiled. Like, you, you don't want any part of it. It doesn't matter how good it is because it came from defiled hands. It's, it's all trash. You're going to throw it away and, and reject it. And likewise, now, because of the fall, we are defiled. Our hands, our hearts, our, our feet are all defiled before God. We're in a state of sin and rebellion. So it doesn't matter what good you produce or come up with, God sees it as defiled, corrupt, and rejects it all. It's not, it's not good. It is, it's all bad. Sinful hearts spoil all that we do before God. And man has a hard time hearing with that because man likes to think he's good. Like, I do good things. I give to charity. I, I'm a nice person. But before God, you're in a state of rebellion against him, uh, an inner hatred, whether you acknowledge it or not, rebellion against your creator, there's nothing good about that. And even your good deeds are corrupt before God, as we will see shortly. So this is depravity. It is our fallen state inclined toward the bad, not toward the good. Doesn't mean we're as bad as we could be, but we have an evil nature that will only produce bad fruit. We're bad trees. We're not born bad trees, and you're only going to get bad fruit from bad trees. This just depravity is also described as being total, so total depravity. And by total, we don't mean intensive, but extensive. Again, meaning you're not as bad as you could be. But what we mean by total is that this depravity, this, this evil nature, it affects every part of our being. That's what we mean. It's total in the sense that it's extensive. It, it covers every part of our being, our intellect, our emotion, our will. Your thoughts, your actions, just any aspect of your personhood has been touched by this depravity and is, is twisted. It is defiled. It is corrupt. That's what we mean by total. It's extensive. It pervades our whole being. So that, that's it in a sense. That's the explanation of it. Total depravity. It, our entire selves have been corrupted by the fall. We're born in sin. We're, we're born with sinful natures 
aimed away from God, steeped in evil, and we can do nothing good. Now, it's one thing to just say that. It's another thing to display that from Scripture. And does the Bible really teach that? Because that's not what uh, certainly our world thinks describes the human condition. They think, you know, you're basically good. You're born good. You're not born bad like that. And that's, that's not true. That happens because you get messed up by life and maybe someone abuses you as a kid or something. That People aren't really that bad. You're basically good. Does the Bible really teach, though, that no, you're not. You're basically bad and, and in fact, even worse, enslaved to sin and to Satan. It's important to establish this truth because, remember, the, the whole theme of this first section is understanding the sin problem, that we can understand the sin solution. And this whole doctrine of salvation is about the sin solution, so we got to get the sin problem. Well, all that goes to say what we need to see if, if this is what the Bible really says. Does the Bible teach this total depravity? What is the picture of man in his current state? You know, right now, before salvation, so after the fall, before salvation, mankind as he exists right now, what's the picture of man in his fallen state? Good or bad? Able to do good or bad? Able to choose God or not? Over this week and next, we're going to find out. Just basically now, all we're going to do is basically your homework, some good old-fashioned Bible study, going through these verses and now exploring and explaining them and bringing them to bear on this teaching of total depravity. So let's, let's jump in. Turn your Bibles to Genesis 6. And we'll go through a lot of these verses that you had to look up on your own. If you did look up, look them up on your own, all the better. The more you hear them, and as you hear them explained, hopefully it reinforces and solidifies what you studied on your own. And if you didn't go through them on your own, well, you're going to go through them now. Genesis chapter 6, where we'll start. Now, as you know from the handout, a lot of verses to cover, a lot of ground to cover, so we'll go relatively quickly here. But you'll see... You're going to see it just pile on pretty quickly how the Bible describes man's present state. All these verses have to deal with mankind after the fall, before salvation. So this is what we're wondering. Genesis 6, it's before the flood. God God himself looks on his creation, which is in a way freshly fallen. It's only been hundreds of years. And what does he see? Genesis 6, 5. It says, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great, on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually pretty clear this is God's perspective and notice how Moses here in verse 5 really piles on the the comprehensive language God saw that every intent not just half or a few but every intent of the thoughts of his heart were only evil. That's exclusive. They were just only evil every now and then. No, continually. All the time, they were only evil. This is heart-level corruption. This is the, that's what we're talking about. The, the will, the intent of his heart was corrupt and wicked. And here's what's really interesting. If you turn to Genesis chapter 8. This, is man, this was man's problem after the fall there's murder, Cain and Abel. There's death. It's a fallen creation. It gets so bad, the violence and bloodshed are everywhere. God says, I'm wiping it out. Uh, I'm starting over with Noah and his family. 
the, the wickedness is too great. So he kills everybody. He floods the whole earth and everyone dies except Noah and his family member. Why? Because what we just read. Wickedness was great. The intent of his heart was only evil continually. And at first you might think, well, okay, great. We're starting over. Noah's righteous. Things will be different. But even after the flood, nothing's different. And God himself declares, Genesis 8, 21. After Noah, the, the flood is over, they get off. Noah offers. Verse 21, the Lord smelled the soothing aroma. And the Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man. For the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. And I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. In a way, it doesn't make sense. Like, wait, if that's still true, and it's confirmed in chapter 9 where Noah, in a way, he's like a second Adam, and he has his own fall after this recreation. He falls, too, in the sin, so he's, he's actually not perfectly righteous. And everyone that came from him is a sinner. If this is true, shouldn't God, like, flood the earth, I don't know, every 500 years, just kind of reset, wipe it out, because it's just, it's only going to be like this. But, you know, God is teaching through this. This is not the problem. Flooding the earth, that's an external solution to an internal problem. The problem of sin is internal. It's not your environment. It's not how you were raised. It's an internal heart nature problem. The intent, and notice he says it again, by the way, the intent of man's heart is evil. That's, that's your core being, the intent of your heart. It's language describing your nature. And God said before the flood, after the flood, it's, it's still evil. And the reason why God says he's not going to curse on account of uh, man or flood on account of man is because that's actually not the solution. And no wonder right after this we are introduced to Abraham through whom the solution comes, the promise of the seed, which we know Christ, who will deal with the problem internally. That's getting ahead of ourselves. So from the beginning, though, which is important, right after the fall, not long after, we see God's own verdict. These guys are internally and entirely corrupt. That's total depravity. That's, that's all we're talking about here, but, but that's a lot. Now read some verses in Job. You can turn to Job 14. And I'll read some of these for you just to speed up a little bit. As you turn to Job 14. You know, Job 4, 17. His friend Eliphaz says, Can mankind be just before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? And the rhetorical question's teaching, no, no. No one can be pure before his maker. And Eliphaz says the same thing over in Job 15. What is man that he should be pure? Or he who is born of a woman that he should be righteous? Behold, God puts no trust in his holy ones, and the heavens are not pure in his sight. How much less one who is detestable and corrupt, man who drinks iniquity like water. There Eliphaz is testing that, or testifying that, look, compared to God's holiness, even the angels are disregarded, and creation is less than perfect, not pure. So how much less pure and worthy are humans who are full of sin? I mean, even the holy angels compared to God's holiness are nothing. How much lower are we in sin? Now, you have to be careful in the book of Job, accepting testimony from Job's three friends because they're often presented as the wrong view. In this case, though, it's, it's actually pretty clear to see what they said of God was true and what they were saying of man is true, that no man is pure in God's eyes. 
they got that part right. They just misapplied it to Job, thinking, well, Job, you must be suffering because of your personal sin. That's where they went wrong. But Job himself actually affirms the sentiment that there, no one is pure before God. And that's our problem. Like Job 14.4, where Job is speaking, who can make the clean out of the unclean? No one. And he's speaking of, of man. You know, he says before uh, of man who is short-lived. Verse 3, you also open your eyes on him and bring him into judgment with yourself. And Job knows no one can stand in God's judgment because no one is clean. We have an internal problem. Job is reflecting on death. And he often bewails death because he recognizes our uncleanness before God and we can't do anything about this. The patriarchs understood depravity. King David understood depravity well. Let's turn to Psalm 14 now. Psalm 14. Again, as you know, a lot of verses, so we're going to keep rifling through them, but stop me if uh, there are any questions or if you want to throw in a comment. But some, we'll look at a handful of Psalms here of David now testifying to the same thing. David, a man known for being close to God, understanding God through his word, his revelation. And David testifies in Psalm 14, verses 1 through 3. These verses should sound familiar. He says, verse 1, The fool has said in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt. They have committed abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. That's a pretty stunning and staggering condemnation. Because here, although David is is writing this, he's speaking for God prophetically. God has looked down from his holy habitation. He has looked down to man like he did before the flood to see what's he looking for? Who's seeking after God? Who's looking for me? He's doing good. That's what God's looking for. And what does he find? Nothing. There are none who do good. No one is looking for God. There's none who understand, not even one. All have become corrupt. And you know Paul quotes this in Romans 3 where he makes the same point. It's comprehensive language, and this is God's own verdict. God looks on creation and says, nope, they're all all depraved. There's none good. None seeking, none doing good, none righteous, not even one. That actually includes David. David knew that, though. He knew he was not inherently, internally righteous, only made righteous by God through faith. Pretty big deal. Psalm 58. So the person who says, comes across your path as I'm on a trek searching for God, I'm actually looking for God, they're lying. That's what it's kind of inferring. Well... Not necessarily. There are none who seek God, but God can draw, and he does draw people to himself where they become the seeker, so to speak. But in reality, God was first seeking them. And so you don't need to necessarily call someone who says, I'm seeking after God, a liar. Just understanding that 
if someone really is seeking after God, it's because God is already doing a work in their life. So we don't want to, you know, turn them away per se, but say, well, hey, let me come show you. Because we still have our responsibility to evangelize and to uh, walk them to the Lord. But um, on their own, unassisted, there are none who seek. Unassisted, there are none who seek. And we'll get into that, of course, later. Psalm 58. Another first three verses. This is still David. He says, verse 1. Do you indeed speak righteousness, O gods? Do you judge uprightly, O sons of men? No, in heart you work unrighteousness. On earth you weigh out the violence of your hands. The wicked are estranged from the womb. Those who speak lies go astray from birth. Here he's, he's crying out against the unrighteous. There are unrighteous men. In fact, unrighteous judges. He calls them gods in verse 1. Uh, referring to their supposed like divine authority. These are the judges. He's railing against the judges of the land. Christ actually quotes this verse, but we won't get into that now. But these men, they're judges. They're supposed to be the best uh, Israel has to offer, but they're not righteous. They're not just. In fact, verse 2, in heart you work unrighteousness. They're unrighteous in heart, these supposedly just judges. And he's, he's calling for God to judge them. But David weighs in in verse 3 that these men, these, the wicked, they're estranged from the womb. And these who speak lies, they go astray from birth. These guys were born that way, as are all. All the wicked go astray from birth. They, they weren't just raised that way. They were born this way. In their hearts, there's unrighteousness. And David knows that internal unrighteousness is a congenital defect. A birth defect, a spiritual birth defect because of the fall. And, and he condemns them for that and asks God to intervene. Psalm 143, one more psalm we'll throw in here since we're here. Psalm 143, verse 2. Once again, a psalm of David. He says in verse 1, Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my supplications. Answer me in your faithfulness, in your righteousness. And do not enter into judgment with your servant. For in your sight no living man is righteous. See, David doesn't exclude himself. He was righteous by faith in, in God, but he understood that no living man, no man living on his own is righteous before God. And God is faithful, God is righteous, and so David actually prays here and elsewhere for God not to enter into judgment with him because then David knows even he won't stand because he's not perfect either. He is a sinner and depraved at that. And so he appeals for grace. Now David found grace, we know, but he's expressing the right heart, the heart of one who's been shown mercy, who humbles himself before God and appeals for grace Otherwise, David himself would be judged. And notably in verse 2, he says, For in your sight, no man living is righteous. None are internally, inherently, uh, pardon me, righteous. You cannot make yourself righteous. You're not born righteous. Your only hope is this similar appeal for mercy and grace that God might make you righteous. And that's what the faith is all about. 
Do you have a question, Joe, or a comment? David, being a king, you're anointed by the Holy Spirit. So you're different from the, uh, the populace of the nation Yeah, David's a great example of an Old Testament believer because he was a true believer. Granted the, the power of the Holy Spirit and his office as king. So we can all see and learn a lot from David as an uh, Old Testament believer, but who has great insight into the unsaved condition as well, and the condition of his own heart. Let's keep going. I'll read for you a couple of Proverbs. You don't have to turn there. All of these will be quick. Proverbs 20, verse 9. Who can say, I have cleansed my heart. I am pure from my sin. He's at, he asked rhetorically. The answer is nobody, obviously. Who can say, I am cleansed. I have cleansed my heart. I am pure from my sin. You can't, you can't clean your own heart. You can't perform your own open heart surgery, physically or spiritually. If you got plaque in there, physical or spiritually, you can't do anything about it. Someone's got to do that for you. You don't have the power. You don't have the ability to cleanse your own heart. Again, the proverb, uh, likely Solomon writing that proverb, understands this is a heart problem, and you can't do anything about it. Proverbs 30, verse 12. It says, There is a kind who is pure in his own eyes, yet is not washed from his filthiness. You know, there are some people who think they're holy, who think they're good. We, we meet them all the time. People in the world, they, they think they're good. But here, the, the writer here, I think those are the Proverbs of, of King Lamuel, if I'm not mistaken, understands that a lot, a lot of people think they're pure. In their own eyes, they're good, but they have yet not been washed from their filthiness. They're still in their sins. They just don't know it. The wool is over their eyes still, and they think they're good. That doesn't mean they are. They're still in sin. Depravity extends to all. There are no exceptions. Although people can be ignorant, choose to be ignorant over it, think they're good, even though the whole world thinks they are good, likes to think they're good. Scripture's clear they're not. Let's jump into Ecclesiastes now. Ecclesiastes 7. Keep turning Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. Chapter 7, you can turn there. Unless you guys by the windows are warm, uh, if you don't mind for traffic noise, we can close them, but if you're too warm, leave them open or maybe the door. But you guys can choose. If you're too warm, you can leave them open. Ecclesiastes 7. And here Solomon is appealing to wisdom, as he often does. If I look back at verse 19, he says, Wisdom strengthens a wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. Indeed, there is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and who never sins. Also, do not take seriously all words which are spoken, so that you will not hear your servant cursing you. For you also have realized that you likewise have many times cursed others. And real quick, notice what he's doing here. He's appealing to wisdom that we all need and that the king needs. Wisdom strengthens a man more than ten rulers who are in a city. And the point he's making is part of this wisdom is understanding depravity. Part of wisdom is understanding that all are sinners, yourself included, and so he says, verse 20, and that's our key verse. Indeed, there's not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and who never sins. Now that's expression of depravity. 
And there's wisdom in understanding this truth, which he applies in verses 20 and 21. It's like, hey, when someone speaks a word against you, don't take it too seriously. Don't, don't cut his head off because, look, you, you're going to do it too. You're a sinner too. We all sin. So basically show some grace. This is teaching and wisdom. But the point we're making, though, is obviously in verse 20, where he rightly identifies this truth. There's not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and who never sins. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise because it's, it's not true. He says down in verse 29, Behold, I have found only this, that God made men upright, but they have sought out many devices. The word for devices referring to schemes or intents or man's wicked imaginations and all that he derives. We were made good. We once were good. We were created to be good, but we're not. And all have sought out many devices. And according to God, it's from birth. The testimony we've already seen from birth, from the womb, estranged from youth, and so forth. He'll even say in chapter 9, verse 3, This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that there's one fate for all men. Furthermore, the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil, and insanity is in their hearts throughout all their lives. Afterward, they go to the dead. He's lamenting universal death, the problem of universal death. Everybody dies. It's messed up. It's depressing. It is. But he also understands the, the, the source of the universal death and its universal depravity. The hearts of the sons of men are full of evil and insanity is in their hearts throughout their lives. And it's true. Can't deny it. Man is wicked. Just look at human history. And you need no more than to look at our own record to see basically proof of depravity. Is man responsible for great good or great evil over history? And like you said, depravity doesn't mean people are as bad as they could be. People can do good on a human level. So there's charities out there. But the course of the world, there is profound human suffering caused by humans. You know, humans, we give someone enough power and there will be plenty of suffering that comes along. And that's just depravity at, it, uh, at work. We see it at work every day. We have a couple more to go in the Old Testament, so let's let's keep going, making decent time. A pair of verses in Isaiah, so flip to the right a little bit. Isaiah 53. Again, we're just doing some Bible study on the testimony first from the Old Testament on man's nature. After the fall, before redemption, fallen man, what's he like? What's his heart like? What's his life like? What is his, what's the relation of him to sin and to his will? And so far, already, it's pretty bleak. We have an evil, fallen nature and heart. And Isaiah 53.6 says the same thing. You guys know this verse. It's in the Suffering Servant passage. It says, All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Notice the first part, though, where he's identifying the problem. All of us, all of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. That's why we need a Savior. Isaiah 53 is about the suffering servant, Christ, the Savior. And why do we need him? Because we're all lost sheep. All of us, without exception, have turned away from God. And that's a reflection of depravity in our fallen natures. We're born turned away. You're born lost, turned away from him, and you need him. To be brought back. And if he doesn't bring you back, 
You're not going to find your own way back because you're lost. And we'll see even more so blind and enslaved later. Here's another big passage, Isaiah 64. Look there. Here, Isaiah, near the end, he's reflecting on the devastation of Israel. I mean, things aren't going well for Israel. That they're perishing. And so in chapter 64, he reflects on on their state and calls on God to, to basically to show up in his power and to deliver them. Like he did at Sinai, just to, to show up and show yourself powerful. Let the nations tremble before you. There's no God like you. So he calls on God to basically come down and, and show up. Verse 2, that the nations may tremble at your presence. Verse 3, like when you came down, the mountains quaked at your presence. There's, there's no God like this, he says in verse 4. Verse 5, he confesses his sin and their need for salvation and deliverance. He says, verse 5, you meet him who rejoices in doing righteousness, who remembers you in your ways. Behold, you were angry, for we sinned. We continued in them a long time. And shall we be saved? And then verse 6, he says, for all of us have become like one who is unclean. And all of our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. And all of us wither like a leaf. And our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. Isaiah here, he's reflecting on how, how, how lost and wayward Israel is. None of them seek after God. They're, they're, they've been in sin. They've continued in sin for a long time. And, re- and think about Israel's history. Basically, from their beginning, from Sinai, they've turned away. They've continued in sin their whole existence. And he says, verse 6, this really stunning admonition of their internal state. All of us, and he, notice how he includes himself, have become like one who is unclean. And he says, all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. Uh, there it is right there. This is what we mean by total depravity. He gives a graphic depiction of their state before God. Look, this is Israel. They have the covenants. They have the commandments. They have the law. They have the temple. Shouldn't, if anyone, shouldn't they be able to offer God righteous deeds? Okay, sure, pagans, yeah, they have no righteous deeds. But shouldn't Israel, shouldn't the Jews be able to offer up to God good works that mean something? But Isaiah himself says, no, even our, all of our righteous deeds are like filthy garments before God. What men consider righteousness, God looks upon what they offer up and says it's all filthy garments. It's all uncleanness. And some of you know that the language behind this word speaks of a woman's menstrual cloth that has been used. And it's a very graphic, just really shocking image. But Isaiah uses it to shock you and make you understand that your best is like that. And that's not good. I mean, that, that's not acceptable, obviously. And, and to God, it's, it's just showing the disparity between God's righteous, righteousness and ours. And the best we have to offer, our our best good deed or righteous deed is still to God unclean and unaccepted. And so later on, that's why he appeals to to God for grace. There's no one who calls on your name, verse 7. 
who arouses himself to take hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and have delivered us into the power of our iniquities. But verse 8, But now, O Lord, you are our father, we are the clay, you are the potter, and all of us are the work of your hand. Do not be angry beyond measure, O Lord, no remember iniquity forever. He goes on to appeal for grace. That's the right conclusion, because once you understand depravity, total depravity, the sin problem, you're going to quickly realize we are in trouble and we can't do much about this. In fact, we can't do anything about this. Even our best good works, if they're, if they're really like this, totally unaccepted, what can we do to be saved? Nothing. All we can do is just plead with God for mercy, for grace, for forgiveness. Like, Lord, I am unclean. Woe is me, like Isaiah said in chapter 6. For I am a man of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the majesty and the holiness of God. We can only just appeal like, Lord, please, just grace, mercy, forgiveness. I don't deserve it. I can't earn it. My righteous deeds are like filthy garments. All I can do is plead for grace. You see how the sin problem informs the sin solution? Isaiah reflects it. All of Scripture reflects that. And, and, and I trust you guys know that. But now you're seeing the connection between the, the problem and the solution. This, this kills salvation by works. There, there is no salvation by works. It cannot be because even your best works are unrighteous before God. And as we will see later, this kills salvation by personal effort. Any personal effort. God must do something to save us. I'll become clearer and clearer as time goes. Well, just finished. Let me read you a pair of verses in Jeremiah. Jeremiah 13, 23. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then you also can do good who are accustomed to doing evil. Another just death blow to human effort. Can you change your skin color? No. You have a... You have a tree out front that's an apple tree. Can you make it an orange tree? There's nothing you could ever do to make it into an orange tree. You don't have the power. You can't change your nature. That's what he's saying. And in the same way, he says, you can't do good who are accustomed to doing evil. Your, your nature is evil. And so you can't, you can't change that. That's a, a death blow to your ability to change yourself and do good before God. Lastly, Jeremiah 17 verse 9 he says, the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? And that's, that's what we're talking about with depravity. It's a heart problem. Your heart is deceitful above all else, lost. You have an inner nature problem. You're depraved from the inside out. It's not as simple as, yeah, we just do bad things here and there. Yeah, every now and then we screw up. No, you have a corrupt heart, an inner nature that produces only sin and it defiles our every word and deed. Now, from the Old Testament testimony so far, any questions? It's pretty clear, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's pretty straightforward. And hopefully, what, if you did your homework, you made a list of just observations, and it, should just, it just piles up. It's like one after another, and they're all bad. They're all strikes against us. The case is pretty clear. Now, I want to turn to the New Testament. We're still going to keep going. At a brisk pace, so stay with me here. You know, the, the clock's ticking and getting late, but stay with me. I thought it was interesting in Isaiah 64, where it said, Our iniquities like the wind 
take us away. I just thought of leaves blowing. They have no control. They're just blowing willy-nilly in the wind. And that's yeah. how we are. Yeah. It's it a, takes us away. Yeah, your sin carries you away. I think we all can sadly testify to that. You get in a moment of the flesh and your sin just takes you where you don't want to go. And uh, that's the power of the sinful flesh. Ed? Sin nature, a dog barks because he's a dog. Right. Can't, he can't meow because it's not his nature. Man dies, sin, because of the wrath of God. Well, there's a, because man dies, it shows that his nature is wrath. His nature is death. So he, somewhere along the line, he lost that righteous standing and he fell into sin. He fell into, into death. And it had to be by his nature. Because when Adam died, we all died. That it says that we're, we're sinful from our mother's womb before we're even born. In God's eyes, we're considered sin. And proof of that is a newborn infant can die. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. yeah, sounds like you're understanding total depravity well. So, so good on you. You know, a dog barks because it's in his nature. A man sins because it's in his nature and therefore dies. And it's a good, good summary of the total depravity problem and, and the sin problem. Joe, one more? Uh, I'm just noticing that the chapter 32 of the Jeremiah, God indicates that he's going to make uh, new covenant with the nation of Israel and the nation of Judah. Yeah. And then it's well, so the Gentile believers to come into the church in the, uh, after the arrival of the Okay. So that is the grace that's coming. Yeah, okay, yeah. Yeah, so Joe's just making a good observation that Jeremiah is a good book where he, he certainly understands their problem, like they're lost, they're depraved, but God shows up with the solution, which is the new covenant, covenant of salvation, uh, which is entirely of God. God will initiate, God will do that, God will bring it about. And, and that's very good. We'll get to that all that solution stuff in the weeks to come. Now, turn to Mark 7. I know your notes take you to Matthew first, but just to connect the dots from what we just read in Jeremiah, I want you to see this in Mark 7. Jeremiah 17, he mentioned the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Jesus said the same thing. If Jeremiah is not good enough for you, well, Jesus said the same thing. You remember in Mark chapter 7, the Pharisees, they see the disciples of Jesus eat food without washing their hands. And so they're like, whoa, what's up with these guys? And, and you, how, why are you teaching your guys to not ceremonially wash and observe the tradition of the elders? And so Jesus goes on first to rebuke them because God never commanded that. They made that law up. And so first he rebukes them for their, their uh, traditions of men over the word of God. That's the first 13 verses or so. And then down in, in verses 14 through 23, he begins to teach them about the nature of true defilement. It's not external. Washing your hands doesn't make you clean because your defilement is internal. You need an internal washing. You can't wash the inside of you. You can't wash your heart your, and your nature. And so he goes on to teach defilement is from the inside. Let's just do this real quick. Verse 14. After he called the crowd to him again, he began saying to them, Listen to me, all of you, and understand. There's nothing outside the man which can defile him if it goes into him. 
But the things which proceed out of the man are what defile the man. And if anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. When he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples questioned him about the parable. And he said to them, Are you so lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from outside cannot defile him, but it does not go into his heart, but into his stomach, and is eliminated? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he was saying that which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles the man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All of these evil things proceed from without and defile the man. Here Christ himself is likewise diagnosing the heart problem of every person. Look, fruit, apples and oranges, beef, you know, food, pork doesn't defile you. God had ceremonial reasons for banning certain foods in the Old Testament, but it was purely ceremonial. That doesn't actually make you unclean before God. You're unclean for a different reason. You produce your own uncleanness from within. It comes from a defiled heart that defiles everything it touches and produces, and you only bear bad fruit. This is Christ saying, you're a bad tree on the inside. You have a fallen heart nature, and, and from that spews forth all this stuff. It's like a water well that someone has poisoned with, I don't know, anthrax or something like that. All the water that comes from that well now is, is poisoned. That the well has been defiled, and until you can somehow regenerate the well and, and just renew it somehow, it's just only going to produce poison water. And our hearts have been poisoned by the fall. They're, they're desperately sick. They're wicked. And they only spew forth evil deeds. All these evil things proceed from within. Christ affirms this heart problem. This is why we sin. Now, now turn to Matthew 7. Uh my bad here on a typo. It says Matthew seven twenty one through 23. I'm so used to quoting those verses that I just wrote them down. It's actually Matthew seven seventeen and 18. So that was your the real verses I wanted you to look at. Matthew seven seventeen and 18. You can make that adjustment in your notes if you like. Which come right before. And this is why I wanted to point out. Right before Jesus says, uh, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, run to the kingdom. Back in verse 17, he says, so every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. In verse 18, he says, a good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Of course, he's teaching here about different classes of men good people, bad people, or really, in the context, false prophets. And he's writing so that they can identify false prophets, false teachers who will take them astray. He says you'll know them by their fruits. But in general, the good tree represents good men, and the evil tree represents evil men. Each class of men is governed by a basic set of principles, i.e. their natures, good and bad trees, good and bad natures. And the fruit obviously represents their deeds, that which comes from their natures, their acts, their actions. And it's very clear that the good fruit only proceeds from good trees, good natures. And the bad fruit only proceeds from bad trees, evil natures. There's no exceptions. 
I said before, it's a binary state, meaning it's either or. You can't be half good tree, half bad tree. You're either good or bad. And if you're a bad tree, you can only produce what? Bad fruit. He says, very clear, verse 18, a bad tree cannot produce good fruit. The fruit of the bad tree is the deeds of the flesh, for example, that you know well from Galatians 5. And the fruit of the spirit being that the result of a good tree. The problem is we're all born bad trees. Like he identified in Mark 7, we have internal heart natures that are corrupt. This is why he said in Mark 7, springing forth from within are evil thoughts and deeds and murderers and adulteries and so forth. That's all the bad fruit. Where is it coming from? Well, we're bad trees. It's coming from our natures. Something has to be done to change our nature if we are to be saved and then later produce good fruit, which is the result of that new birth which you guys already know. But Christ himself, he's very clear on the sin problem and total depravity. You have a nature problem. Again, you've got an apple tree. Can you turn it into an orange tree? You, you can't. You can staple oranges on it, but it's not an orange tree. It's still an apple tree. It has to be, and this is obviously supernatural work to change it into an orange tree, similar from bad to good. Matthew 12, I'll just mention, he, he says to religious leaders, he says, how can you, being evil, speak what is good? That's kind of, it's a really interesting passage because Christ, he's talking to the religious leaders of Israel who have slandered him. They say he's of the devil, has a demon and so forth. But think about that statement. He says in verse 33, Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. So it's another echo of that teaching about false teachers, and these Pharisees are the false teachers. He says in verse 34, To them, you brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The good man brings out of his good treasure what is good, and the evil man brings out of his evil treasure what is evil. And he goes on, but it's really, you know, saying the same thing. But look, think about this. Here are these Pharisees and scribes. These are the religious leaders of Israel, the holiest men of Israel. They're supposed to be the the, the best that Israel has to offer. But what's Christ's verdict on these men? He calls them a brood of vipers. And then he says, you're evil. He says, how can you, being evil, speak what is good? He straight up calls them evil that's in them even though they they do the, all the good deeds they pay tithes they do offering they pray all day still and we know they're unregenerate of course they are therefore still evil doesn't matter all the good that they do religiously hey these guys are keeping the law externally right they are but they're still dead in sin and therefore jesus calls them evil because it's not about external it's about internal And he says, the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. It's kind of similar to Luke 11, 13, where he says, in that time though, he's teaching his disciples. And he says, if you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give to the Holy Spirit, uh, the Holy Spirit to those who ask of him? There, Christ is really condemning all of humanity and speaking to to the disciples but representative of humanity that look you guys being evil can still give good gifts 
How much more will your father give you a, a good gift? See, Christ understands total depravity does not mean every person is as bad as they can be. You can do good things on a human level, like give your kids a gift. But he still calls them evil. He, he still declares all humanity is inherently evil. John three nineteen, Christ says, this is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. John 15, let's turn there. Or no, I think I wrote that down too for the sake of time. Yeah, John 15, 5. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Man in his fallen state, why does he reject Jesus? He loves the darkness. Christ is the light. How do you explain the rejection of Jesus? Jesus comes on the scene. And has there anyone been such a personification of pure love and mercy and grace and goodness? And so all the people around Jesus, being who he is, how, how did anyone reject him? How could anyone possibly turn against him? You think if they were all restored with some sense of prevenient grace that, you know, that their depravity was restored and they had free will to choose, who would ever turn down Christ? How could they do that? But Christ himself explains, well, because they're of the darkness and they hate the light. The only reason anyone anyone believed in Jesus was because their eyes were opened which he himself displayed like actually physically when he opened the eyes of the blind. In fact, what's surprising is not that people rejected Jesus. What's surprising is that anyone believed in him. And that only testifies to God's grace to open their eyes. In John 15, he likewise says, or in a similar way, teaching the believers, I am the vine, you're the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Notice that last part. Apart from me, you can do nothing. What does he mean? You can't bear fruit. He's just talking about vine, fruit. He wants you to bear fruit. That's why God saves people, that they would bear real fruit of righteousness. But he says, apart from me, you can't do that. You can't bear fruit. Every unbeliever, are they apart from Christ? By definition. So every unbeliever can do nothing. Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. That means every unbeliever cannot bear any spiritually good fruit before God. Similar to what we read in Isaiah, there's no righteous deed you can perform. Romans 1, let's turn there. See if we'll speed through a few more of these and come to a close. I don't think we'll get through them all, but that's okay. Romans 1. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. This is men after the fall. They suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Verse 28, Just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do these things which are not proper. Verse 32, Although they knew the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. 
And it's just, I mean, you guys know, Romans 1 through 3, he just piles it on. The case for depravity is overwhelming. He's convicting all of sin and unrighteousness, especially in chapter 3, where Jews and Greeks, they're all condemned. He quotes that Psalm 14. There's none righteous, none, not even one. None who seek after God, none are good. And it just piles it on and on. In fact, just a few more in Romans. Look at chapter 5. We say the original sin last week from Romans 5, but earlier in the chapter, notice how he describes our state before salvation. Just listen to all these adjectives that describe us, or, or nouns even, but he says, verse 6, For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. So we were helpless, we were ungodly. He says, for one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man some will, would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So we're helpless, we're ungodly, we're not righteous, but in fact we're sinners, we're enemies. Verse 10, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled will be saved by his life. Notice how he describes our pre-salvation state. We're hopeless, we're ungodly, we're not righteous, we're not good, we're sinners, we're enemies. In chapter 6, he'll add, we're slaves, slaves of sin. Verse 17, he says, But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient to that from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. Having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. But he goes on and saying, look, before salvation, not only were you helpless and godly, sinners and enemies, but you were enslaved to sin. We'll, we'll stop there, although we could keep going through these verses, but our time has run out. You guys did the homework. If you didn't, keep going through these verses because they just pile it on. I mean, you're going to see key verses like Ephesians 2. We all were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were enslaved to Satan, the prince of the power of the air. We were by nature children of wrath. So we're talking nature, right? Ephesians 2, 3, we're by nature children of wrath. Uh, a lot of stuff. The biblical testimony of humanity's total depravity, it's clear, it's consistent, it's overwhelming. Seemingly everywhere, Scripture paints a bleak picture of mankind being born in and dominated by sin. Man's entire being is infected by sin. It produces sin-stained thoughts, words, and actions. Let me just, to, to kind of wrap it up, I did the homework myself. You know, I went through all the verses, and I made a running list of observations. These are assertions that Scripture makes about us, our, our human state after the fall, before salvation. And I'll just read you my list. It's from all the verses we read, but these are all of the assertions, that the, the, the propositional truths that Scripture makes about our fallen condition. And then you tell me, is it good or bad? Well, what's the picture? So just bear with me and listen. Here's, here's the assertions from the Old Testament verses we read. Every intent of man's heart is only evil continually. The intent of man's heart is evil from youth. Man cannot be just or pure before God. Man is corrupt. There is no one who does good. There is no one who seeks after God. All have turned aside. All have become corrupt. Man is estranged from the womb and goes astray from birth. No man is righteous in God's sight. No man can cleanse his own heart or make himself pure from his sins. There's not a righteous man on earth. Man's heart is full of evil. All people have gone astray from God like sheep. All people have become unclean. 
All their good deeds are like filthy rags before God. None can change their natures or do good. Man's heart is deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. That's just the Old Testament. Now the New Testament assertions, like bad trees, all people produce only bad fruit from within. From the evil heart of man proceeds all evil deeds. All humanity is inherently evil. Men love darkness rather than the light. Man can do no good work outside of Christ. Men suppress the truth and unrighteousness, their foolish hearts being darkened. Men have given over to themselves to their depraved minds to do evil, to approve of evil. All are under sin. There's none righteous, none who does good. Man is helpless, ungodly, unrighteous, sinful, and God's enemy. Man is enslaved to unrighteousness. Man sets his depraved mind on the things of the flesh, which is death. Man's depraved mind is hostile toward God and not able to please God. All are shut up under sin. All are spiritually dead in sin, enslaved to Satan, and by nature children of wrath. Man is futile in mind, darkened in understanding, excluded from God because of hardness of heart. Man is of the darkness, and therefore under God's wrath. Man is alienated from God, hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds. To man, nothing is pure, but both their mind and conscience are defiled. Man is worthless for any good deed. That's the last verse we didn't read, Titus 1.16. Man is worthless for any good deed. And that's not even all of it, but that's a lot. And if you did the homework and you made those observations, you, you, you should have come away with a list like that. I mean, it's just one after another. It's, it's not a hard case to make from Scripture. In fact, it's an overwhelming case, this case of depravity. This is total depravity. Man, in his nature, after the fall, is, is thoroughly sinful, thoroughly lost, thoroughly corrupt, not as evil as you could be, how, how much you express that evil does change, does vary, does depend on other factors. But it's there, and you will only produce evil, maybe great, maybe small, but it doesn't matter. Before God, what matters is you can produce no good, no merit. And, and that's, that's the problem as well. Now, before we can draw even further hard conclusions from this total depravity. One more question we need to ask, namely, how does this depravity, and I trust it's clear, how does this picture affect our will? Our will. Even though scripture describes us as sinful and depraved, does that affect our free will? Does man still possess a free will where he can choose God if he wants to? Yeah, he may be depraved. He may be corrupt. Look, Arminians actually, uh, most of them, if they know their own theology, they actually will affirm total depravity. And that's good because you really can't argue against all the verses we just read. They will affirm total depravity. But what does total depravity do to the will? Does it affect our will or our ability and that we'll find out next week in a, a, a corollary lesson. You can see almost a part two, although it's technically lesson five. You have it before you um, on total inability, total inability, which relates to total depravity. How depravity affects our will, the whole concept of free will or not. That we'll get into next week. So we'll end it here. You have another handout, a quote. 
we'll save that for next time. We're out of time for right now. So that, that'll be our introduction next time. It'll just summarize what we've learned about depravity. Such a good quote. I gave you a whole page worth. It's just a, a perfect illustration of depravity. But do the homework. Just a heads up. The, the handout you have before you on total inability, it's, it's long. That will be a, a two-weeker. So technically you have two weeks to, to do this lesson five in front of you. Uh, it's just a heads up. So, hey, get through as much as you can, but you'll have a little breathing room to do this next lesson. It's worth, it, it's such a big deal that we'll probably spend two weeks on lesson five starting next week. But hopefully tonight, this gives you a pretty solid biblical understanding of total depravity. A lot of teaching, a lot of verses I know, but establishes, the picture is clear. And you need to just really be convinced that there are none good. There are none righteous, not even one. And already we should be able to see, if that's the problem, it's going to take a pretty substantial supernatural solution outside of ourselves. Because if we're bad trees and we can't make ourselves good, what can we do apart from appealing to God's grace? Indeed, salvation is all of grace. We'll see that more next time. Let me finish here, pray for us, and dismiss us. Lord, we're grateful for this time in your word. As always, every week that we spend time in your word, it's always going to profit. Your word does not return void. It accomplishes what you will. And we know, Lord, that you will to edify us tonight, to instruct us, fill our mind with truth. And that's, that's important. Sometimes we need to simply be instructed from your word and be convicted as to what's true and what's not. And Lord, it can be challenging for some Christians because we live in a, an entire world system that wants to believe and teaches us to believe that you're good. You're basically good. And, and therefore, you don't really need God all that much or, or reconciliation or redemption. But Lord, we need to be filled with the truth of your word that teaches super clearly that we're, we're not good. We are lost, depraved, blind, enslaved, unworthy, unholy, enemies, and, and more. Our condition is, is a sad and starry, sorry state, Lord. But that it's so important that we know that because that's the starting point to understanding the solution, which is all of grace, Lord. We confess, like Isaiah, that we simply need your mercy and your grace in our lives. Otherwise, we're lost. Lord, we pray like David, don't enter into judgment with your servant, for we can't stand before you. It's only by your grace that we can stand. We thank you, Lord, though, that we already know the solution in Christ who died for our sins, to make us holy, to make us righteous, to make us good trees, and I pray now, Lord, as we learn all this, we, we bear good fruit for you. We abide in Christ. We are in fire for him. And as we do so, we bear fruit. That's the only way we can please you through works is in Christ. Not to save us, but simply to honor you. We want to bear fruit. For that's why you saved us, Lord, to glorify your name through uh, the way we live. And so we lift up our lives to you now, rejoicing in Christ and, and looking forward to learning more, though. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. And real quick, I mentioned I passed out some handouts about Lifeline. It's our local pregnancy clinic looking for volunteers. So for ladies and even for men, looking for a place to serve. We're going to look, uh, learn more about it ourselves as a church. But I just want to get your thoughts running. So read the handout, a potential place that you can serve as our church does more with them. Secondly, do you guys remember Tom and Bonita Ha- yeah. Hoskins yes. or Haskins, yeah. they visited on Wednesday. They were going to move here, but they actually moved to Washington. But, you know, friends of the church, mm-hmm. and they'll visit. 
Tom had a lot of heart issues, Ooh. and a lot of it, uh, I forgot which one it was, but almost total blockage in some of the uh, arteries and veins. I think arteries leading away from the heart. So tomorrow morning, he's got bypass surgery at 5.30 in the morning, which, uh, well, hey, that's good. He needs, needs to get it done. So if you remember, pray for him tonight, pray for him tomorrow. In fact, let me uh, just go ahead and pray for him right now in his recovery. And then we'll finish. Lord, we pray for our, our brother Tom and, and, and Benita that you are with him tomorrow in the surgery, that you, you bless and oversee him and you heal him, enable the doctors to get it right and, and restore him to health, that he can be with his wife and, and they can enjoy more years of you. We're thankful that he's, he's in Christ, and so whatever happens, he'll be with you uh, either tomorrow or some other day. But Lord, we always pray for, for, for his healing and, and the family's comfort, for Benita's encouragement and comfort as well. To not worry, but to trust you in your perfect plan in all things. So we lift them up to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Tony's still sick, he's feeling a little crummy, but they're doing, you know, all things considered, they're okay. Yeah, they should be here on Sunday, they said. Right? All things considered, she's doing great. Was it successful?